I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Welcome back to the Darish Chai Experiment, the podcast where we look at life, we look at the Bible, and we try to change the question from good and evil to death or life. Last week, we began to look at the Noah cycle. If we look at these five chapters or these five sections of Noah that we're going to go through, and we put them back to back, they create for us a cycle of events. From the larger view, we can zoom out and apply to other situations, to other places in Scripture, even perhaps to our own lives. One of the uh, things you'll notice, though, is that the cycle, we've actually seen it occur in Genesis 1-5, through but the cycle didn't begin with judgment there. It began with what we're going to talk about today. It began with creation. Only in the Noah cycle, it takes on the hint of new creation, the flavor of new creation. But as with any cycle, you'll notice that this first step that we looked at last week is also going to be the last step that we're going to look at when we get into the story of the Tower of Babel. This next step, the one that we're going to talk about today, new creation, it's only for those people who make it through that last step. If you're someone who doesn't go through God's judgment and make it out on the other side with life, then you won't get this new creation. You won't get to take part in this step. Those who have come under God's judgment early by accepting the judgment that was placed on Yeshua, and then by beginning to enter into judgment with your own heart and make changes there in, in, in your own life, are they the only ones who will make it here. Those who seek to avoid all judgment, they'll be destroyed when God's judgment comes, and they don't get the opportunity for new creation. And that new creation takes on so many different forms. We're going to look at a lot of those today. As we go through this teaching, as we proceed you're going to notice a lot of connections between this particular teaching in Genesis 1. Why is it? Well, it's because that cycle that we're looking at isn't an isolated cycle. It's not isolated simply to the story of Noah. If it were, it would be relatively useless to us. But if this cycle is something that extends beyond this one example into multiple examples, and we can begin to identify these various steps occurring in order, then we can put a definition on it. We can begin to look at Scripture through that. We we get a new lens to look at Scripture through and to see this occurring over and over. Because as I talked about last week, life is found in patterns and life follows cycles. Uh, it reminds me of the old uh, riddle of the Sphinx. The riddle of the Sphinx goes something like this. What has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? It's a man. It's the cycle of a man's life. All life operates according to cycles. And so when we can identify these cycles, especially when we can identify these cycles in Scripture, we can learn from them. And we can apply them to our own lives. And we can learn, for example, how to make that split from the cycle of judgment that takes towards death and enter into this cycle that leads towards life. 
Sometimes the cycle is a warning, and simply recognizing that the cycle exists can provide a way out of that cycle, a way to cease operating in that negative uh, repetition. Uh, the pattern of Genesis 3-6 is a good example of this. If we can recognize when we see something that may be off-limits, but then we recognize that we're beginning to identify that thing that's off-limits as good in our own eyes, and then begin to take of that thing that's not really in our realm to to have or to deal with or to to hold, to partake in. When we can see that occurring, we can then understand how to overcome it, how to get around it. So the Noah cycle begins and ends with judgment. And in that beginning, we looked at the key to circumventing that that cycle, for escaping the cycle of judgment that leads to death and finding a way to go through the cycle in a way that leads to life. And that's through finding grace in God's eyes, right? That's how it began. Noah found grace in the eyes of Hashem. And finding grace in God's eyes allows us to bypass the world's judgment and, and to take that judgment on ourselves immediately and to be found righteous in God's eyes, perfect in our generations, and then able to be given instructions that we can then follow, which will help us to circumvent the, the natural course of events that's coming and that will destroy each and every one of us. And that, in our day and age, is done through Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross. That second step that occurs once you've received that judgment that leads to life, is new creation. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. This parsha is only 14 verses long. It's very short. But it opens to us a window into the realm of creation and new creation. Um, it's one that all of us who have taken on the death of Yeshua, we can identify with this new creation process. We can identify with what it's being talked about here. Only 14 verses, so let's go ahead and read those 14 verses. Genesis 8, 1 through 14. And then we'll talk about those, and we'll expound on those and see what it is within these few words that holds an amazing depth of meaning. Genesis 8, verses 1 through 14. And Elohim remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And Elohim made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were stopped, and the rain from the heavens was withheld. And the waters receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of a hundred and fifty days the waters diminished. And in the seventh new moon, and the seventeenth day of the new moon, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased steadily until the tenth new moon. And in the tenth new moon, on the first day of the new moon, the tops of the mountains became visible. And it came to be at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window and the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, which kept going out and turning back until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for its feet, turned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of all the earth. So he put out his hand and took it, and pulled it into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening, and see, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in its mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. And he waited yet another seven days, and sent out the dove, which did not return to him again. And it came to be in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, in the first day of the new moon, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second new moon, on the twenty-seventh day of the new moon, the earth was dry. So <laughs> that was uh, pretty unhelpful, right? 
uh, some birds went out and there was an olive branch and uh, the waters receded and what do you know? There's not a whole lot there if we look at it on the surface. So we're going to approach it from another way. There is a, a cultural misconception. Uh, it's permeated Christian society and its society as a whole, and it does it really does a disservice to the whole message of the Bible. When we look at what society tells us, when we look to what our churches and our religious systems tell us, what do they tell us? What great hope is it that we have to look forward to? When we die, what happens? As I said, we're going we're gonna to touch on uh, that Genesis 1 teaching a little bit more. In church, we're told that we go to heaven. We go to be with God in a place of otherness, and we exist there for the remainder of eternity. We begin to sit on clouds and with harps and mansions in the street of gold, singing praises forever. Karl Marx once said he called the he called religion the opiate of the masses. And if we view scripture and we view religion as pointing to this end, Marx was right. This view of heaven is, in essence, simple wish fulfillment. It's escapism. It's this idea that I can't get what I want here, and so all of the things that I wish I could have when I die, then I'll, I'll get those things. With pop culture and traditional religion, uh, we all picture heaven as this place that's custom-designed to fill our every desire. Uh, the problem with this view of Scripture it says absolutely nothing about the problems we face here on earth. It provides no solutions. It only provides an escape. It says nothing about how God is going to redeem this creation back to himself. Rather, this view is one where God's whole purpose is to wipe out this fallen and corrupt thing and everything in it. Our view of what God is doing in this world and the story of the Bible as a whole, in a very real way, defines how we act in the world. But the story of the Bible, the story of Noah, is not one where humans are taken elsewhere while the world is wiped out. What do you mean? Noah was put on the ark and he was taken elsewhere while the world was wiped out. Okay, yeah, on the surface it would seem if that, if that were true. Uh, but the story of Noah and of the Bible as a whole is that cycle that we're examining isn't one of escapism. It's a cycle of, it's not a cycle of allowing the world to rot but rather it's a cycle of redeeming the world from the corruption that we have enacted upon it. Not only uh, a redemption of mankind, as we want to think of it in the church, but a redemption of all of creation. And last week we looked at the destruction of the world. The destruction was accomplished through this act of uncreation. And we read a limited reversal of the acts of creation that we're told of in Genesis 1. Uh, all flesh was to be destroyed, everything in which was the breath of life, days five and six. Uh, the waters above and below were allowed to come back together. That's day two being reversed. Uh, the dry land disappeared under the water. That was day three. The creation of Genesis 1 was reversed to, to the point where nothing that breathed and walked on land could exist anymore. So when we open up to Genesis 8, verse 1, if we know even the slightest thing about Hebrew there's something we should really notice here. And it's a word that I brought up in passing in that first teaching. And it's that God made a wind to pass over the earth. An earth covered with water, right? So what is the Hebrew word for wind? It's the same word used for spirit. 
It's Ruach. And in Genesis 1, we read that the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, hovered over the waters. Well, what do we read of here in Genesis 8? There was a Ruach from God that was over the waters. Oh boy, guess what's happening? Creation's being made anew. This one phrase, if we're reading it in Hebrew, it would set off an alarm in our heads. And as we continued through this next, through this first verse, that alarm would only increase. It's the, the word train that we looked at last week is here once again. Because in verse two, the waters above and the waters below are stopped up and a separation between the two once again begins. In verse three, the waters recede steadily from the earth. The, what was day three of Genesis? The waters receded from the earth and dry land appeared. All that had been undone in that uncreation is now being redone. Genesis one is being reenacted on earth. New creation is coming about. So those alarm bells that began ringing at the wind over the water should then point us forward as well, because there's plenty of other times in scripture where we read about wind and water and people passing on dry land and water being separated from land. (laughs) You get where I'm going, right? Exodus 14, crossing through the Red Sea. We've all seen the movies, whether it be Prince of Egypt or that uh, latest travesty, the gods and kings or whatever it was. But Israel... There was a wind that blew over the sea all night long. The waters were split from the dry land, and a place was made for mankind to exist. Then what follows after? Those who were to be judged unto death were then drowned in the seas, exactly like it happens here in the story of Noah. Or how about Second Kings? We have two prophets approaching the Jordan River. The water is then split, and they cross on dry land. And then a wind comes down, a whirlwind comes down and takes one of them off into a new existence. In a way, the wind comes and takes him like Noah to some other existence. Did he, was he taken to heaven? It says the heavens, but the heavens was just the sky to the ancient Hebrews. It was the, the domicile of God. Does that mean that that's where he stayed? We have no way of knowing that. Or, let's go on to Mark 1. Yeshua, Jesus, he approaches again, the Jordan River. The waters above the sky splits open, and a ruach, this time in the form of a dove, descends over those waters, and a voice speaks new creation. He is created anew into his new ministry. He is, in a way, begins that new phase of life. Sometimes that's what new creation is. It's simply a new phase of life. And that's only five times that we see this word train in use. Genesis 1, Genesis 8, Exodus 14, 2 Kings 2, and Mark 1. Each time it's a slightly different take on this idea of judgment and new creation being enacted in the world. But I bet if you thought and studied, you would find a lot more. I know of at least two more that I can mention, but I'm not going to. Find them yourself. There's a ton of them in the Bible. So let's put on our Sherlock hat, grab our magnifying glass, and see if we can find those for ourselves. We need to take the time to examine each of these instances and then compare them against each other. We have to consider the nuances at play and the interplay of the ideas and and then consider how those ideas are modeled in our own lives, the lives of a believer. Did I hear someone say baptism? 
You're right. Yes, baptism is another picture of that. We enter into the waters and are judged unto death and then raised anew out of those waters into a new, as a new creation and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Read Acts. The, the baptisms that occur there are basically that same pattern. This is, an, in fact, a symbol that uh, of a new creation occurring in the lives of a believer, uh, going into baptism. It's that idea of taking on that destruction, destroying that old man that is under judgment, and being raised anew into that new creation. We become that new creation. We get that fresh start, begin to build anew in the place where that old man once stood. And that begins with the Spirit of God hovering over that desolate wasteland of our dead works. The Spirit begins to separate those things in our lives, the things that are of death, and it begins to the process of putting them to death. The Spirit then gathers together the things in our life that are after the image of God, after the kind of life, if you will, and it brings them through the upheaval in our lives to the other side so that those can grow and fill the earth. And these qualities are the ones that are inherited by the new man. Uh, some passages in the New Testament that kind of explore this idea is Ephesians 4, 22-24, Romans 6, 20-23, Second Corinthians five fourteen through seventeen. Each one of those passages examines the idea of new creation realized in the life of a believer. That last passage, however, has something that's very cool when we consider it. Second Corinthians five seventeen. It says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a renewed creature. The old matters have passed away. See, all matters have become renewed." The thing is, is that the word "is" isn't there in the Greek. It it doesn't read, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. It actually reads, if anyone in Messiah, new creation. Does that mean that he is, that it's been accomplished in him? Not at all. It means that new creation has been founded in him. And that process of recreation has begun. It's that idea of he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Right, Philippians 1, 6, uh, on the day when Messiah returns. And the day that Messiah returns, what happens to us if we read other places of Paul? We get our new creation bodies. We were raised, that resurrection from the dead occurs, and the, we enter a new phase of life in this world. Uh, the, so the moment that all of this occurs, uh, our lives they cease to be our own. Every person who comes to Messiah now enters into the body of Messiah, and we are him to the world. Each person is a spreading of that new creation to the earth. It's the seeds of new creation being sown. And it's an evasion of redemption into a world or realm of corruption. So the new creation, it's not simply a personal process. In the story of Noah, it happens on a global scale. In the story of the Exodus, new creation occurs on a national scale as Israel passes through the waters and comes out the other side. The act of new creation is one that will occur again. It's a process that will occur worldwide once again. And that new creation is the foundation of the hope that we have in Messiah. The hope that culminates in Revelation 20 and Isaiah 65 and more. What is our hope in Messiah? New creation, life, eternal, this dark, twisted world redeemed back to Eden. 
And that leads us to this, uh, to the last part of this chapter. I hesitate to say last because it's the vast majority of what we just read of those 14 verses. Um, and that's the sending out of the birds. In scripture, birds are a symbol. They're, they're metaphors that are used. And in many cases, they're used to represent spirits. And in this chapter, we have two birds being sent out in four separate instances. So what I'm going into could be a bit controversial for some. Again, it's scripture's controversial. The subject of interpretation of scripture is controversial, unless you just stay at the very base literal interpretation in which you can gain some benefit. But I'm not sure that you can gain as much as is possible. This conclusion that I'm going to describe isn't something that I arrived at willy-nilly either. It's something that I arrived at through the depictions of each of the birds, because each of the birds have a hyperlink to other places in scripture. And then once I looked at those hyperlinks and how they applied, how they could apply here, I applied a method of interpretation that allows us to see Messiah in the Torah. It allows us to see Messiah in the Old Testament. It allows us to see Messiah in other people, perhaps. You know, Joseph, Isaac, David, they're archetypes of our Messiah, right? But we only see that, we only see those archetypes of our Messiah when we use a mode of interpretation that allows us to kind of blur the lines of what we're seeing. So to see this metaphor, we have to do a bit of replacement of the characters that are in the text. And that's something that as you get into the practice of looking at archetypes in scripture and examining them, you become comfortable with. And like I said, it's what we do when we look at Moses or Joseph or David as a picture of Messiah. So let's use this method and apply it to the story of the birds sent from the ark. So we're going to do some replacement here. The place, In the place of Noah, let's see God the Father. In the place of the ark, let's read the place of the Father, the heavens, the, that place above the, the chaotic waters. Uh, the, the birds that are sent out as two types of spirits that are being sent onto the earth. And the water itself as chaos and sin, those things which bring death. So that first bird, it's a raven, right? What is a raven? A raven is an unclean bird. It's a scavenger. It's a spirit that feeds on death. It's a bird of darkness. It's a spirit that the Father sent out onto the earth. And it's a spirit which devours the things of death. It's that That's its purpose, is to take those things that are dead and to remove them from the earth. And it's a spirit that doesn't return to the Father, but stays on the earth and roams it. This language of roaming the earth is used in other places to describe Hasatan, the adversary. Uh, that word Hasatan, it's not a proper name, just to clarify. Satan doesn't isn't some character's name. It's a role that's played, the adversary. The first time we see it, it's actually an angel of God that's that's called the Satan. So uh, please understand, it's not a proper name. It's just the title, the Satan. That's why I say Ha-Satan. It's the Hebrew for the Satan. So anyway, so Job 1-7 speaks of Satan roaming to and fro on the earth, as well as 1 Peter 5-8 and a couple other places in Scripture we read of Satan roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. A picture of the raven going out and devouring the things of death on the earth, right? So just as in the creation in Genesis 1, it was darkness that preceded light. Just as in the cycle of the day, according to the Hebrew calendar, 
darkness precedes light. It's our own human nature. When we're born, we're born into darkness. And that precedes any light that may come into us. So too, in a manner, we don't fully understand or recognize or would even know why. What kind of motivation could there be for this? Darkness precedes light. Darkness is the natural state after all, right? So if we go out into space, what is it? It's dark out there. That was the natural state, and it took an act of God to reverse that natural state. So too in our own lives. Our natural state is darkness and death, and it takes an act of God to shift that into light, into life. So that raven precedes the dove, the spirit of light. After that raven, the dove is sent out. And the, the first sending, we read a few things about the dove as he goes out on his first sending. Uh, the dove found no resting place on the earth. Uh, the dove then returned to the place of the father. And water, chaos and sin, remained on the earth after that point. We get a picture of Messiah in his first coming in this. Matthew three sixteen through 17 It says, And having been baptized or immersed, Yeshua went up immediately from the water, and see, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him, and see a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I delight. The Spirit of God as a dove. That's a pretty clear connection right there, right? Continuing on in Matthew 8, verse 20, And Yeshua said to them, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the heaven have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, nowhere to rest. And so in John 20, verse 17, Yeshua said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. He is returning to the place of the Father. And in Acts 1, we read of that event where he ascends back to the Father, goes back to the place of the Father. And water remains on the earth. Sin, chaos, death, they're still here. They're still in our midst. Each of those fulfilled in Yeshua. And that coming of Yeshua, however, ushered in this new creation on the earth, the one that we spoke of earlier that personal new creation that we can all begin and live in in our own lives. But that wasn't the only time the dove was sent out. The first dove, when he, or the second dove we read, when he comes back, he's bearing an olive branch in his mouth, right? What is the olive branch a symbol of? It's a worldwide symbol, something that has existed from antiquity. It's a symbol of peace. And Yeshua spoke this. He said in his first coming, in Matthew 10, 34-36, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to bring division, separation. A man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are those of his own household. He's coming to separate life from death, to separate those places of God from places of the enemy, those places of light from dark, the waters above from the waters below. So that first dove, when he came, he found chaos and sin, or the water still on the earth. He came in the manner of peace, because Yeshua's lifestyle was a peaceful lifestyle. Yet in that manner of peace, he brought war with him. 
separation. So seven days pass. The seven days is the number of a complete cycle of days. In the in the metaphor of Yeshua and his comings, seven days just means when those days were fulfilled. That's it. It's that cycle of creation from Genesis 1. And so a second dove is sent out. And this time, the dove returns with an olive branch. He returns with peace. And that is something that we read of Messiah doing in his second coming. In Micah 4, 1 through 4, it says, In the latter days it shall be that the mountain of the house of Hashem is established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of Hashem, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let him teach us his ways, and let us walk in his paths. For out of Zion comes the Torah, and the word of Hashem from Yerushalayim, and he shall judge among many peoples, and reprove nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither teach battle any more. But each one shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of Hashem of hosts has spoken. Uh, later on in Isaiah, uh, sorry, previous if you're reading through the Bible, in Isaiah 32, 17 through 18, it says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the service of righteousness be rest and safety forever. And my people shall dwell in a home of peace and in safe dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. And these these passages, they, they speak of that millennial kingdom when Yeshua comes, that time that we read of in, at the end of Revelation, when Yeshua comes to earth. And this time he comes in a manner of war as a warrior king. But what's the result? He brings peace with him. The second coming ushers in yet another new creation, that national new creation for Israel. Israel as the light to the world and operating in a full capacity of the kingdom of God. Zechariah 14 tells us of Egypt, other nations still existing, but them coming to celebrate Sukkot in Israel and Jerusalem. Other nations will exist at the time of the uh, millennial reign. That first resurrection of the dead, being the dead in Messiah raised into a new life, into those immortal bodies that uh, um, that Paul talks about. And Jerusalem as the capital of the world, the temple of God rebuilt in the midst, and Yeshua reigning from his throne within that temple. This peace of the millennium, however, is not permanent. It's not something that lasts forever. In Revelation 20, 7 through 8, after this, it says, And when the thousand years have ended, that millennial reign, is it a literal thousand years? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's it's a, another metaphor for a cycle of time. Hasatan shall be released from his prison, and he shall go out and lead astray nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, two nations, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sands of the sea. The adversary will be released once again, and as the sands of the sea will bring chaos. But the dove will be sent out a third time. And in that third sending, the adversary will be defeated once and for all. Revelation 20, 9 through 10, it says, And they came up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the holy ones in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of the heaven and consumed them. 
something we'll look at in Leviticus chapter 11. It's really cool. Uh, and the devil who led them astray was thrown out into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tortured day and night forever and ever. And in that time, all principalities, all powers, all authorities, those things that we battle against in Ephesians 6 will be defeated forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26 puts it this way. For as all men die in Adam, so also all shall be made alive in Messiah, and each in his own order. Messiah is the first fruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming. That's that second resurrection. Then the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and all power, when all of those principalities of Ephesians 6 are defeated forever. For he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's his purpose of reigning in that millennial kingdom, was to put all enemies under his feet once and for all. And that last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. The adversary and that final enemy defeated forevermore. This dove, this third dove, doesn't return to the ark. It stays on the earth. And what happens after that? The father, Noah, exits his place separated from the chaos of earth, the ark, and enters into this new creation. Genesis 8 uses some language uh, that when I first considered this whole idea, I wasn't really sure what if it was solid or not. But then I noticed in Genesis 8, there's this language used in verses 13 through 14, the last verses of this, this Parsha. And uh, it, in my mind, it cinches it that this is, a, in a way, a prophecy of the coming of Messiah in the future, in the past, and every epoch of our times. In Genesis 8, 13 through 14, it says, It came to be in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. Catch that phrase, the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and saw the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the new month, the earth was dry. Three times in that passage, it speaks of the waters being dried up and the earth itself being dry. No more sea, right? Revelation 21, 1. And I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, that new creation. For the former heaven and former earth, the, the corrupt version of it, had passed away. And the sea is no more. The earth is dry. No more chaos, no more death at this time. The sea is no more. Just as in the time of Noah, as the father descended from his place onto the earth after that final dove was sent out and the kingdom was turned over to the father. Uh, you see where I'm going with this? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Is it accurate? Does it matter? It's cool, isn't it? And that, uh, that leads us to this description of new creation. Isaiah 25 verse 8. It says, he shall swallow up death forever, and the master Hashem shall wipe away all tears from all faces, and take away the reproach of the people from all the earth, for Hashem has spoken. 
Revelation 21.4 speaks in the same way. And Elohim shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former matters have passed away. The Father, Hashem himself, will leave his dwelling that is separated from the chaos on the earth, and will descend and dwell upon the earth. And heaven and earth will be joined just as they were in Eden. There will be no more need for temples, no more need for priests, no more need for sacrifices at that point. And dare I say it, no more need for the Torah. Our training, the instruction, will be complete. What is it that the Torah, or what is it that witnesses against the Torah? Something I read back in the very beginning. Heaven and earth are called as witnesses to the giving of the Torah. What is it in Matthew 5 that Yeshua calls on? Not until heaven and earth pass away will one jot or tittle pass away from this Torah. What is it that the Bible begins with? The creation of heaven and earth, the two witnesses, and it ends with the passing away of those witnesses. At that point, with no death, with no pain, with everything being light and brightness, there will be no, no, no more need for Torah in that day. That day is a long way off. Heaven and earth will have passed away, Revelation 20, verse 11. Death in the grave will have passed away, Revelation 20, 14. The unclean and the abomination will cease to exist, Revelation 21, verse 27. Falsehood and curse will be no more. Blessed, remember, the Torah is blessings and curses, right? Revelation 22, verse 3. Isaiah 60, 18 through 12 says, and violence shall no longer be heard in your land. How was it that the earth was described before the flood? It was filled with violence. The land, the Eretz, was filled with violence. Hamas, the same words that Isaiah 60 is using. Neither wasting nor ruin within your borders, and you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer is the sun your light by day, nor does the moon give its light to you for brightness. But Hashem shall be to you an everlasting light, and your God your comeliness. No longer does your sun go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for Hashem shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended, and your people, all of them righteous, shall inherit the earth forever, a branch of my planting, a work of my hands to be adorned. That's Eden right there, a branch and a planting of his hands. The little shall become a thousand, and the small one a strong nation. I, Hashem, shall hasten it in its time, when the days are complete. And that's the ultimate end that we strive for. That's the hope that we have for. That is our hope. Please understand that in biblical understanding, Hope is not a pie-in-the-sky wish. It is a foreknowledge of something that will occur but has not happened yet. Let's say you get a job somewhere and you start in two weeks, right? That becomes your hope. You know it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And you operate in that hope. You move cities if you need to. You buy a new wardrobe if you need to. You operate. You live your life in that hope with that end goal in mind. And this is our hope. So many times in our world, we confuse or associate hope 
with optimism. But biblical hope is not optimism. Optimism is when we look at our current circumstances and we attempt to put the pieces of those circumstances together in such a way as to arrive at a outcome that we desire. Hope, on the other hand, is not dependent on our circumstances. Hope occurs regardless of what our current circumstances are. Hope operates at a time when there appears to be absolutely no possible positive outcome. You've been unemployed for 12 months. You're still living in this circumstance where your hope has not been realized, but you've got the new job. Do you see how that works? That's hope. Hope isn't the optimism of, well, I'm going to apply today. Maybe, just maybe, I can make it work out so that I'll get a job. That's optimism. That's not hope, and that's not biblical hope. Abraham, Abraham hoped for an heir. Now get this. Through his optimism, I'm going to have an heir, he attempted to manufacture the circumstances for that desired outcome. Simply take a concubine. His optimism led to Ishmael. Hope, however, is something that operated despite the circumstances of age, the circumstances of a failed reproductive system, despite the circumstances that he lived in. His hope of the air was realized regardless of what was occurring. Israel hoped for deliverance from Egypt, and the circumstances continually got worse and worse and worse. And even when one, even when the one who would deliver them arrived on the scene, especially when that one who would deliver them arrived on the scene, darkness closed in and it got worse. The oppression increased. The optimistic were looking for circumstances to get out. The hopeful knew they were getting out. God remained faithful. And out of those impossible circumstances, he redeemed his people. Moses had the hope. Aaron had the hope. The rest of the people may have had the hope. But then again, they may have had just simple optimism. The tribe of Judah hoped to return to the land of Israel after they entered into exile. The optimists from Judah, they sought to go to Egypt to escape that Babylonian exile. And then, once Babylon, Babylon was out of the place, they could return back. They found their own way in that dark situation, and they ended up paying for it. They ended up being killed. Those whose hope was in God's judgment and an acceptance of that judgment went into exile. They built their lives in exile because they knew of the hope of the return. They knew it would happen. So they didn't worry about it. They continued their lives as if it was going to happen. Babylon assimilated Judah into their culture. It looked as though it may have never come. It may never happen. Judah was becoming more and more Babylonian every day. But then suddenly, overnight, Persia defeated Babylon. And the king of Persia, he not only allowed Judah to return, he financed their return. See, our God is one of deliverance in those dark times. Our hope is not in the circumstance 
or in our ability to find our way through the darkness of life. Our hope is in God, who has been faithful in the past to create the ways through. And he creates the means of redemption. And in so doing, he brings about a new creation, a a new beginning. And that becomes vitally important when we look to our own personal hope for a new creation in the future. There are several iterations of the cycle of judgment and new creation yet to come. And in each case, darkness will only get worse before it gets better. The circumstances will look impossible. But our hope isn't in our circumstances or in our ability to find the way through. No, our hope is in the one who's promised to deliver. From beginning to end, that process remains the same. If you pass through judgment, it leads to new creation. And for now, that new creation is contained in seeds. We are those seeds. We are the seeds in the field of God's Eden that he is planting here on earth. We ourselves, when we pass through that judgment, we died already. We have faced death without compulsion. And we've chosen the death of Yeshua so that we might have the eternal life of Yeshua. Yeah, our bodies will sleep. Our nefesh will go down into the grave with the rest of mankind. Our current state, it's faulty. We have that raven nature within us, devouring the darkness and the sin within us. And we still operate in many ways in a manner that satisfies our appetites and our desires. But that new creation has begun in us. If you are of Messiah, that new creation is beginning and it's transforming God's people into a people that can model him and Yeshua out into the world. We're the seeds of that creation. We're being scattered in the field and just as in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. But just as in that parable, there is another sower in this field. It's not just a dove. There's a raven as well. There is another sower who is sowing seeds that would seem to be the same as the seeds of new creation. But those seeds, when they sprout, they end up being only tares, weeds, fruitless mimics. And just as with that other sower, there's another spirit, that other bird. We can be those seeds of new creation by placing our hands, ourselves in the hands of the sower to be spread into the world. Or we can be a seed of death and destruction. This week, as we go through the week, let's consider this. What is our role? Are we becoming that new creation? Are we seeing it realized in our life? And in that happening, are we becoming like Messiah? Are we seeing him realized in our lives? How can we recognize in this in ourselves? How can we spread new creation to the world? I think the question of life versus death can give us that answer. So, as we go through the, the week, as we interface with the world, consider this. You're a new creation. You're the seed of Eden. Are you living it? Are you optimistic? Or are you hopeful? If you're hopeful, then you're on the path of life. And on the path of life, you live each day in every way, seeking life. So let's do that. That's Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com.
That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Shalom.